All righty, welcome to another edition here of Beyond Eight Figures. Steve Olsen hanging out with the lovely Mary Goulet. Hello. Hello, Smiley. How are you? <laughs> Good. How you doing? Richie Ote. What's up, my brother? How you doing? Hey, how's it going? Uh, Whiteway's got it under control in the studio. Kelly's got it under control back at headquarters. And we are hanging here on Beyond Eight Figures, where we do sit down with entrepreneurs who have either exited for more than $10 million or currently run businesses that gross more than $10 million and get to the bottom of the tactics and strategies and shortcuts that they're leveraging to build really successful businesses and in some cases exit from those businesses. And so, man, I got to tell you, we, uh, we, we've just been floored by the response that we're seeing from you guys. So really appreciate those who are stepping up to, to rate and, and review the show. Thank you so much for all of those kind words. And uh, of course, those who have subscribed to the show, thank you so much for that as well. And we've got, uh, some really great guests that will be joining us here on Beyond Eight Figures in the near future as well that I'm super excited about, uh, including someone who I've been following for a number of years and um, just super, really stoked to be able to pick her brain uh, and learn all about what she's been doing in, uh, in her various worlds. That'll be Shalene Johnson. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Shalene's been up to just amazing things as well. So that'll be, that'll be a really good show. So we'll send out details when that one comes out. Uh, and then, well, today... It's just going to be amazing because I've got uh, someone who I've known for a number of years. Uh, and it's funny, we've kind of been dancing around in the same circles for a number of years, and we've actually communicated by phone, communicated by email. Uh, and it wasn't actually until uh, just a, about a month ago, so maybe just a few weeks ago, that we finally connected in person. And even that was a little bit of a struggle. Ryan, uh, Levesque, how you doing, my brother? How you, what, man, it's good to have you here, dude. It's good to finally connect. I'm glad you're on the show. What is going on? Steve, it's awesome to be here. I want to say I'm super grateful and excited to be sharing with you and your audience. And yeah, it was absolutely great to finally connect in person. Yeah, right. It's sort of like when you've known someone online for years and you see that person in the flesh and you have that moment where you're like, it's really you. It's really Steve Olsher. How yeah. cool is this? Yeah. And we connected briefly, and I'm so glad that we're here to follow up on the conversation. Yeah, man, for sure. The first thought that came to mind for me was, yeah, he is hot. It's like, he's a lot hotter in person. Yeah, he is hot. Yeah, that's the way he rolls there, right? Yeah, exactly. I was like, man, cool. Good to hang with you. So before I completely butcher your name throughout this this entire episode here, just can you promote, for once and for all, can you pronounce your last name for me? Totally. It's Levesque. It there is. is an S, there yeah. is an S in the name, and it is purely there. So my ancestors, <laughs> they said, you know what we should do? We should put an S in the middle of this name. And you know what? You don't pronounce it. Yeah. Let's see how that does well. Like, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, man. All right, cool. I, that, and that's what I thought. And then I'm like, well, hold on. I've actually, you know, because I've seen your videos for a long time. And I was thinking back and thinking back. And I was like, oh, my God, I don't ever think I remember how you pronounce it. I just don't want to butcher it here for the entire episode, man. So really great to have you here on Beyond Eight Figures. And I know you're in the middle of a, a whole bunch of interesting things as you, well, always are with everything that you've got going on with ask method and, and, and your new book choose and bucket and so on. So there's a lot of different things that we're going to be talking about here today. Uh, but what I really want to get off the table first is if you listen to the show, you know, we just kind of want to clear the ear on this in terms of how you meet the criteria sure. for beyond eight figures. So have you exited from a business for more than $10 million or combined over the different things that you're doing? Do your businesses currently generate more than 10 annually? So right now, our businesses generate more than $10 million in gross uh, revenue. And really, if we just take two of our main businesses, 
Um, we've got one side of our business, which is our training business, which is called the Ask Method Company. Um, in and of itself alone qualifies on the Inc. 500 list. Um, you can look us up. Our revenue is public. And we uh, focus on teaching entrepreneurs how to launch and grow their business. Mm -hmm. And our sister company, which is Bucket, is the technology that we recommend people use uh, to build the marketing funnels that drive the engine and growth of their businesses online. And between Bucket and Ask, taking out all of our other uh, businesses that we have outside of that, um, we do uh, more than uh, more than ten million a year in those two businesses combined. Yeah, and, and so let, let's take a few steps back, man, because you're you're not new to the game in terms of being an entrepreneur. You've actually, do you think you've always been wired as an entrepreneur? Is this like in your blood? Is, you, is, it, is it a family thing where your folks entrepreneurs? Like, take us back to some of the embryonic stages of how you got into business and what you were doing early on, and then. Did you learn that from the folks? Where, where do you think all that came from? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. And, and I talk a lot about this in uh, my book, Choose. And I share that, you know, what's interesting is that I'm an incredibly risk-averse entrepreneur. Now, uh, I'm the first in my family to go to college. I grew up very blue-collar. Neither of my parents went to college. Uh, my dad worked nights his entire life. Uh, and my mom cut hair in the basement of our house. And so growing up, I had this interesting kind of push-pull. My dad worked for the government as a shipping clerk, loading boxes on the back of uh, trucks in the middle of the night. Um, but he had a government union job. And so my parents kind of beat this message into me growing up that you want a good job that isn't going to go anywhere, right? Get a good job, get a good pension, get a good retirement plan, and you'll be safe. And at the same time, here's my mom who's this entrepreneur who started this little hair shop in the basement of our house. They, my parents converted the bathroom in the basement of our house into a one-room hair salon. And my mom worked five, six days a week to help pay the bills uh, growing up. And so as a young you know, kiddo, I remember you know, being uh, at the foot of her shop downstairs, playing with Lego or toys you know, on the floor, watching her start work at five in the morning. Yeah, that's not a typo. Mm. Five in the morning is when my mom started cutting hair um, in the mornings. Uh, typically, she had a lot of school teachers and people who started school early who wanted their hair done. So I saw her starting at five in the morning, uh, working till it got dark at night. And I think what, what one thing my parents really instilled in me was an incredible work ethic. Sure. You know, my dad worked six, seven days a week, work nights just to put food on the table. My mom started this business on the side to help, you know, pay the extra the bills. And I learned the importance of uh, hard work. Now, I didn't learn the importance of starting your own business and what that can do. But um, I learned from them this kind of push pull of, yes, you want stability, but you also want something that's going to allow you to grow. So, you know, my family now as a dad and a, you know, a husband can build a better life than um, we were able to have, you know, mm -hmm. as kids growing up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and so what was the first, let's just call it real entrepreneurial endeavor? Like, I mean, when I was a kid, I used to pick up a rake and, you know, try to go door to door and rake some leaves or grab a shovel and shovel sidewalks and driveways and mow lawns or whatever. I wouldn't call that a real business. It was a business, but you know, and I'm sure you were industrious like that as well, but, but take us through what the embryonic stages were for the first real business that you created and, and how old were you and, and, and what happened with that business? 
You know, what's interesting is I, I'm not one of these kids that you hear about who is, you know, just crushing it as a as a 10 year old, you know, making, you know, crazy amounts of money or doing whatever. Um, you know, I was uh, I was a, I was the kid. Put it this way. When we were supposed to sell candy bar, candy bars door to door, we'd go to one neighbor's house. They wouldn't be there. I'd turn around, walk back home, and ask my parents if they could just buy all the candy bars so I could get the quota. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I was not a natural-born salesperson by mm-hmm. any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, my first real business that I started um, was uh, I was in my 20s. And at this time, I'd graduated from college. Um, I'd spent a little bit of time working on Wall Street, and I got a job that sent me over to China. And I had this amazing opportunity um, to set up sales offices for the financial giant AIG, American mm-hmm. International Group. And the reason why they sent me over there is because I, I, one of the things I studied in college was Chinese. I could speak Chinese, read Chinese, and it was my dream to go overseas and work in China. And so I had this really cool job that was taking me to city after city, opening up sales offices. And you know, I'm in my mid-20s. I'm managing this local Chinese team. I'm opening up sales offices. I'm flying from, you know, I'm on an airplane every single week. I'm uh, uh, living out of hotels. And I kind of have this quarter-life crisis where I say, um, I don't want, I saw what my future looked like. I saw my boss, who is the head of China for AIG. And I saw what my future looked like, and I said, this is not for me. And I'd always kind of thought that I might want to start a business at some point. I just didn't know what that business was. And it was uh, in 2008 when the world financial crisis hit. Mm -hmm. I had this moment, Steve, where I walked into my office one day, and I had the Wall Street Journal Asia edition sitting on my desk. I walked in and the headline read, AIG to file for bankruptcy. Mm. And, you know, I think if you've ever been waiting for a sign that, like, it's time to do something different, for me, I took that as my sign. Mm -hmm. And I called my wife up at home and I said, honey, go to wallstreetjournal.com, go to wsj.com, check out the headline. There it was, AIG to file for bankruptcy. And I said, you know, I've been talking about wanting to start a business. We saved up a little bit of money. I think this is the sign. And so that day, before I could lose my courage, I decided to walk into my boss's office with a resignation letter in hand. And I said, here's my two weeks notice. I'm going to be moving on. Mm. And it, it kind of gave me the, the fire under my butt that I needed to, to get things going. And the first business that we started was in the most random of markets. Now, you got to understand, my wife had been hearing from me every night at dinner for, you know, the past months, I want to start a business. I want to do this thing. I want to do this. And, you know, it reached this point where she said, Ryan, you've got to just pick something. Like, pick something and go with it. Mm. So she'd been feeding me these ideas. What about this? What about that? What about this? And so she comes across this opportunity, this idea. And this is right around the time the website Etsy.com just started. So mm-hmm. Etsy.com, anyone off? It's like eBay for handmade crafts. Yeah. So she comes, she says, take a look at this uh, jewelry that's selling like crazy. And the jewelry was Scrabble tile jewelry. It was jewelry ma- made using a combination of Scrabble tiles uh, from the game and origami paper. Now, and her thing is, she said, take a look at this. It's selling like crazy. And here we are in China. We have access to all the origami paper you could possibly want. We have access to inexpensive labor. What if we manufacture this jewelry and import it into the United States. Mm. I just quit my job, and one of the reasons why I quit my job is I didn't want to be tied to a, 
a location. I wanted location independence. I wanted to make my own hours. I said, honey, that's great, but like, I don't want to be tied to a factory in southern China. So we shut the door on the idea. Then a few weeks later, she, she brings it back up again. And she says, take a look. And I said, honey, I thought we closed the door on that idea. And she says, no, no, no. There's this woman on Etsy. She's not selling the jewelry. She's teaching people how to make the jewelry and check it out. Now, the cool thing, Steve, about Etsy is you can see how many sales someone's making on a daily basis. And you can basically reverse engineer their income. So we saw that she was selling this PDF guide on how to make this jewelry for like 20, 30 bucks. And she's selling like 25, 30 copies a day of mm. this thing. And we reverse engineer and say, gosh, this woman's making like $10,000, $15,000 a month selling a digital product that is no overhead. Mm -hmm. It's all profit, mm -hmm. right? So, um, so we buy it. It wasn't very good. My wife learns how to make the jewelry. We videotape the whole thing. We photograph the whole thing. We make it into a guide on how to make the jewelry. We start selling it on Etsy. First month, we make $1,000. Next month, $2,000. 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, making $9,000 a month. We're like, oh my God, we're going to get rich. Like, this is amazing. This is great. I'd quit my job. I'm all in on this thing. Mm -hmm. And then the next month, sales dry up to almost zero. And I learned uh, a lesson. It's one of the lessons I share in the book, Choose, of the importance of selecting an evergreen market as opposed to a fad market. What I learned in this process, Steve, is that first business was just a fad. It was one of these things like Pokemon or Beanie Babies. It just, you know, it, it was this huge thing in 2007, 2008 that just basically fell off a cliff and disappeared. And we've seen this happen with markets more recently, like the fidget spinner market. Sure. Right? Anybody who went into that, that was huge for a minute and then just dropped off the face of the earth. Mm -hmm. I'll give you another one more recently. Bitcoin. Bitcoin. <laughs> Bitcoin, dude. Like yeah. you, you remember that yeah. time when it was like this frenzy where you couldn't turn a corner without someone talking about Bitcoin and how a Bitcoin newsletter that they're starting, Bitcoin membership, yeah. Bitcoin exchange. I'm only accepting Bitcoin as payment because Bitcoin's going to explode. Yeah. Well, if you look at what's happened, people that's fallen off a cliff. Mm -hmm. And um, the way you can um, identify whether the market you're thinking about going into or the market you're in right now, your business, if it's one that's trending up, trending down, if it's cyclical, if it's a fad market that's about to fall off a cliff, is by using the free tool, Google Trends. So Google, so cool that they publish this data. They publish the data of how many people are searching for that keyword on a monthly basis. And they've been publishing this data back to, I think, 2006. So you can go back in time and look at how that market has evolved over time and have some clues around where it's going. Mm -hmm. So if you type in fidget spinners or Bitcoin or something like that, what you're gonna see is that the markets are nothing, nothing, nothing. They explode and then fall off a cliff. Mm -hmm. if, you did, if I would have had this wisdom now, I would have seen the same trends in the Scrabble tile market. I would have seen that it was a thing that just went huge and then fell off a cliff. I never would have gone into that market. But there are other markets that are relevant for decades, markets that are relevant for years. And they're what are called evergreen markets. Markets that when you go to Google Trends, you're gonna see that they are like, a, I call them metronome markets. Like if you know what a metronome sure. is, it's just tick, tock, tick, tock. Year after year, they keep chugging along. They don't disappear. Mm -hmm. And that's the first clue for the type of, I talk about this in the book, Choose, the type of market, the type of business you wanna be going into is a metronome market. 
a market that's going to stand the test of time, a market that's here today, it's going to be here 10 years from now, it's going to be here 100 years from now. And you can build your future and your foundation on a market or business like that. Yeah, no, it's really, really great insight. And uh, definitely want to get into more of the uh, teachings and choose. And of course, you had your first book, Ask, is that did so well. Um, we only have so much time here on the show, so we'll figure out how much <laughs> how much we can dig into. But what I really want to understand then for, from you is in, in terms of getting, well, more traction, the Scrabble thing, it was good for a little while. And then, as you said, it was kind of a fad and that, that faded out. Interestingly enough, the first three letters of faded is fad. So there you go. There's, there's, a, there's a learner for you. Um, but yeah, that faded out. You started thinking about different opportunities here. Take us through then, how did you get into the current business that you're in now and the business then that you were able to scale? And was it just you and your brilliant wife? Because clearly she's a lot smarter than you are. I get it now and I'll make sense. Um, but you know, was it just you and the, and the brilliant wife? And then was there a key first hire? Like take us through how your current business came to be what it is. You know, so after that Scrabble tile debacle, um, I decided the next business we were going to start um, had to be in an evergreen market. So um, I'd learned a thing or two launching the Scrabble tile thing. And the next market that I went into, I said, I want to go into a business that's um, never going to go away. It's been around forever. And I started looking at what were the longest lasting hobbies in America? the ones that have been around forever. And any guesses on what the oldest hobby is in America? And every, every single year, it's a, it's a hobby that's either number one or number two. Any guesses on what it is? Scrapbooking. <laughs> it's a good one. Um, but the, 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 and, 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 and I, it's an interesting market. I, I talk about scrapbooking in the book. Um, the market is uh, uh, gardening. Gardening, hmm. sure. You think about it, right? Something like over 100 million Americans consider gob, uh, 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 marketing to be a hobby of theirs. And so as you start looking at mar- uh, hob- uh, gardening, you'll find that there are all these sub-niches and niches within the gardening market. And so I started exploring those and ended up settling on the orchid care market. Now, um, I wanted a market that, unlike Scrabble, would be a uh, Scrabble tile jewelry, would be around forever. And so I looked at orchids, and I found that orchids have been around since the time of the dinosaurs. You can go to Renaissance paintings and see people with orchids, caring for orchids in their um, in their uh, observatories and their greenhouses dating back to the, the, the age of the Renaissance. And orchids have been around um, and probably will be around um, longer than we're around, right? So I said, orchids, pretty safe bet. Went into that business, took that business from nothing to $25,000 a month in 18 months, hmm. took it to over half a million dollars a year. 10 years later, after starting that business, Steve, it still produces over half a million dollars a year in this tiny little obscure niche of teaching people how to care for their orchids. Hmm. So after starting that business, I said, great, but you know what? What if it goes away like the Scrabble business? I better start another business. So I went into another niche, teaching people how to improve their memory. Why did I go into that market? Well, what I studied in college was neuroscience. I studied neuroscience and Chinese. Those are the two things that I studied. And so I had to make my parents proud uh, and show them that I was actually using my degree. Um, So I went into the market of teaching people how to improve their memory. From there, again, I was kind of gun shy. I was like, what if this goes away? So I proceeded to enter 23 different niche markets, just like the ones that I'm talking about. Markets ranging from things like satellite television to high-end water filtration systems, market after market. And in that process, 
I discovered this methodology that was working over and over again. That methodology became the ask method. I published a book back in 2015 called Ask, where I revealed the methodology I used to enter market after market successfully. That book went on to become the number one national best-selling book of the year. Mm -hmm. uh, Inc. Magazine rated it the number one marketing book of the year. It mm -hmm. sold hundreds of thousands of copies in all these different languages, published all around the world. And when you publish a book like that, Steve, what's great is that um, you get all sorts of great feedback from people that how the book has changed their world and changed their life. But you also get feedback from people who say, dude, I read your book, I followed the steps, and it didn't work. Yeah. And so when you get feedback like that, it leads you to wonder, what did you do wrong? Well, mm -hmm. that book served as the backbone of the business that you're asking about, which is a training business where we teach entrepreneurs how to implement this ask method in their business. And we've got a book, we've got digital programs, online courses, we've got coaching and certification programs where we even certify people in this methodology. And so we went inch wide, mile deep in this one thing. But along the way, we realized that there were people who weren't having success with ask. And it led me down this path of this three year research project to figure out what was going on. Why were people failing? And all roads pointed to the same place. It all pointed to the fact that there were some people who were, despite the best effort, despite following the methodology to a T, were failing all because of one thing. They were choosing bad markets. Hmm. They were making the single biggest mistake when it comes to starting your business, and that is they were choosing markets that had no chance of success in the first place. And, and there's a metaphor, Steve, that I use that I think is really helpful. It's like this, you know, people, when it comes to starting a business or expanding your existing business, whether it's, you know, doing a million dollars a year, $10 million a year, whatever, um, you know, a lot of people I found were putting a lot of focus on one thing. And the metaphor is this, like when you start a business, it's like throwing your raft in a river and you can have the best raft money can buy. You can have the best equipment. You can hire the best crew. Heck, you can row 18 hours a day and bust your butt. But if that raft is facing the wrong direction, or worse yet, you throw that raft in a river that doesn't have any water in it, or that has too much water and swallows you up whole, you're never going to get to your destination. Mm -hmm. What I discovered is that the biggest mistake people were making is that they were choosing the wrong river. They're putting their boat in the wrong direction. And I realized that in Ask, we had taught people multiplication. We had taught people division but we never taught people how to add and subtract. We're teaching algebra before pre-algebra. And so choose, even though it comes after ask, is really the step before you ask. Mm -hmm. Before you can ask your market what they want to understand what to create, what to build, you need to choose the right market in the first place. And so that's what choose is all about. Yeah. And that's sort of the evolution in our business around um, you know, where we are now and, and where we're taking things. Yeah, hey, Ryan, this is Richie. I have a quick question. So on Beyond Eight Figures, our kind of moniker is start, scale, exit. And I noticed based on all those businesses and what you were just referring to about someone getting started in business there, picking the wrong things, I noticed the theme that all of your businesses were teaching. Was that intuition or was that early on you saying, wow, I like the idea? I mean, you lived in a land where you could get commodity-based products, the cheapest anywhere in the world. 
in China. So <laughs> yeah. what? Like, I I love it myself too because I worked in e-commerce for years and shipping, receiving, inventory. Like, obviously, it's better if you don't have any of that. Was that intuition? Or what What do you think got you to choose teaching and stick with it? Because obviously, it's worked for you. You know, in that first business, the Scrabble business, um, I saw I was part of that world, and I saw, like you said, all the complexity involved around that. And I wanted a simple business. I want a business that I could, I didn't have a whole lot of money saved up. So I wanted something that had low startup costs. And as I was looking at all the different models, I discovered that this idea of teaching of what we call now education and expertise, selling education and expertise was incredibly powerful for so many different reasons. Like you mentioned, you didn't have inventory. Um, you didn't have startup costs where you needed to um, you know, build production molds and get prototypes made. Um, it didn't require an expensive physical storefront. One of the, I, the businesses that I looked at starting in China was actually a physical restaurant. Um, starting a restaurant, um, and I looked at the startup costs, and even in China, it was half a million to a million dollars to get a restaurant off the ground before you've even made a dollar, right? Versus selling education and expertise, I discovered that you could, you know, you could have an idea, create a course or a program or a digital, you know, product, and then uh, take a day or two to create it, and you could start selling it tomorrow. Like that's how fast you could possibly move. And so I've had a lot of success in this model. It's not the only thing that I've sold. I've sold high-end water filtration systems. I've sold, I've sold physical jewelry. I've sold software. But of everything that I've sold, the thing that I advocate for and the thing that I recommend certainly bootstrapped entrepreneurs start with is selling education and expertise. Um, and I even recommend people who have another type of business to use that to augment your business because the margins on selling information are incredible. Yeah. And I don't know if you guys knew this, but I did the, uh, the research on this. And did you know that over $450 million a day is spent on information online? Hmm. $450 million a day. And it's a business that is exploding. Like when I went to college, the tuition for where I went to school was about $40,000 a year. It was an expensive school, but it was $40,000 a year. Now, I graduated over 15 years ago. Today, that same university is $80,000 a year. Isn't that insane? It's insane. Like, like the amount of money people are spending just on their education is exploding. And so it's a, it, it represents a global business model that is, uh, that is growing in a huge way. Mm -hmm. People are investing more today in their education, their expertise than anything else. And this is in all corners of the world. So um, I love this model for so many different reasons. I recommend this model for um, most entrepreneurs who are either starting out or want to expand their business. Um, and it is one that um, all signs point to continuing to grow globally around the world. Yeah. So l l let me ask you this. And so I just want to clean a couple things up first. So are, are you still in those 23 markets? Those are all evergreen type information based products, if you will, where you're uh, it just it, it's just set it and forget it. Are you still in all of those markets and still generating income from each of those? You know, what's interesting is that as my model evolved, uh, some of those markets, some of those businesses, I owned outright. I was the sole owner, sole uh, 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 you know, beneficiary of those business. 
uh, businesses, and um, those businesses, many of which continue to operate today. If you go to orchidsmadeeasy.com, you're going to see my orchid business. Mm. If you go to rocketmemory.com, you're going to see my memory business. They still operate and exist today. So hold on. So, for, my, so those businesses that still exist, can you give us a general sense of how much revenue you generate from the existing businesses on an annual basis? Yeah, you know, each of those businesses generates, you know, on a gross uh, revenue basis in the six figures. So some of those businesses do a quarter million dollars a year. Some of them do half a million dollars a year. Um, they're smaller businesses. They're not, that's all you know, autopilot. eight businesses. That's all autopilot. It's all, auto, it's all autopilot income. Now, uh, what's interesting is the ones that I had the most success with were businesses where I partnered in some way, shape, or form with either an expert or a combination of experts and partners to drive uh, uh, and run the business, where I came in to implement what's now come to be known as the ask method mm -hmm. to either get that business off the ground or take that business to the next level and get paid on a royalty basis. So in other words, instead of getting paid, uh, uh, instead of taking all the risk for building that business, um, I evolved into a model where I would work with other entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. take that business off the ground, and get paid five percent of gross sales. Do they or pay you? Do, do they pay you to come in and do that, or is it all royalty based? So I would get paid, and it ranged for it, every deal was different, right? So um, on some deals, I would come in, build the entire marketing engine behind the business using what's come to be known as the ask method mm -hmm. and get paid a percent on all sales that we generated. So um, I've had royalty uh, uh, deals that paid as much as twenty-five dollars to $50,000 a month in royalty mm. to me on a single deal. And I did that for a better part of a decade, right? Um, now, people always want to know, well, if that works so well, why did you stop doing that? Well, you can imagine, and my day like that, my day today is an, as a representation of this. You can imagine if you're trying to operate in 23 different markets at the same time, you got to be a pretty busy guy, right? <laughs> so unless me, you set it up like, on Evergreen, like you said, like with the orchid stuff, I mean that that languaging is not going to change. The only the only real question would be traffic, and you know, platform, and platform, right, to drive traffic and visibility for it, but. I mean, a lot of that, as you said, is set it and forget it. So, but please continue your thought. Some of it said it's, it's certainly set it and forget it. But the orchid business, just to give you a sense, to build uh, an ATM like that, right? Um, to get that off the ground, it's not something that happens in you know uh, a month. It's not thirty days to you know fast riches in that business. Just to give you a paint a picture of what we've created in that business, um, we have a, a best selling book. We've got a DVD series. Um, we have uh, a master class for every single one of the most popular orchid varieties, from Phalaenopsis to Paphiopetalum to Dendrobium, <laughs> Oncidiums. Um, we have Who knew, Ryan? Sports. Who knew? That's impressive, <laughs> man. How to grow orchids uh, uh, with hydroponically, so adding no, just 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 with water. Um, how to make your own fertilizer at home using what's called worm tea, which um, you know, uh, uh, for anyone who's a gardener, is basically worm poop. Mm. Uh, so worm tea. Um, how to uh, orchid photography, orchid watercolors. We have a monthly orchid membership called the Green Thumb Club. So you can see that yes, it is set it and forget it, but there's a substantial amount of work to take something from 
just an idea to a uh, you know something that generates half a million dollars a year on autopilot. So, yes, but um, you know, but but if you spent a month doing that, you could create all that content in a month, right? I mean, like if you I, really, I wish I wish I could. If you could create all that content in a month, come to my house, dude, oh, and teach me. How all right, to do two it. months. How much? I mean, like really, two no, months. That's like. A year to eighteen months. Come on, stuff. man. That's 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 a few that's a few years. I wish I could say that um, really? we were able to get it's that. It's a mile we, deep. Well, we took the business from nothing to uh, uh, twenty five thousand dollars a month in eighteen months. Um, those eighteen months were just focused on that one business. Mm-hmm. That's it. Nothing else. You know, that was just you know uh, uh, twelve hours a day on that one thing. Nothing else distracted. So, do do you right? have someone then full time still working on just the orchid business? Yes, exactly. You, so many, we have someone in place now. So if we fast forward 10 years later, yeah. we have someone in place. I have staff in place that handles fulfillment, that handles customer service in place. We have someone whose sole responsibility is to you know, babysit that business and make the tweaks and changes that need to be made to keep it relevant. But mm-hmm. my involvement, gosh, I probably spend maybe five hours a year. Mm-hmm. What does it cost for them to maintain it? For you, What does it cost you to have them maintain it? You know, what do we make in that business? We make six figures in that business. We're not walking away with half a million dollars a year in our pocket, of course. That's gross revenue numbers. Um, but, you know, after what we spend on traffic, after what we spend on staffing, after what we spend on uh, physical product, after we spend uh, on infrastructure, so, you know, websites, uh, mm-hmm. everything like that, um, we still walk away with a six-figure payday. And, that's you, and that's you solo. That, you have no partners in that one, correct? That one is we, you know, well, my wife and I own that 100. percent So yeah. that business, just that one business out of 23, paid basically most of our lifestyle for the last 10 years. Yeah. So are you in? In reality, is if you get this right in in just a few markets. I mean, let's just say, I don't know. Let's just say you're clearing 200k in orchids, and you're clearing 200k in X, and 200k in, in Z. Right. I mean, whatever. For most people. They could live the exact life. I mean, you got two kids. You know, you, you live in Austin. I mean, you, you, like you could create a pretty dang good lifestyle just on those three businesses. Right? I mean, there there are people who would kill to net six hundred k. Or obviously, I'm just throwing out you know, just random numbers. My dream, here. dude. When I when I first came in, when I first started, when I started having success in market after market, my big vision was simple. I said, I'm going to build twenty half million dollar year businesses, oh, and I'm going to have a ten million dollar empire. That was my that was my thing. Now I realized along the way, um, you know, why I was doing that was uh, for a couple things. Number one, again, I mentioned at the beginning of this interview, I was incredibly risk averse. So every business that I went into, we used different technology because I was afraid. I didn't want to have any single failure points in my business. I didn't want to have any one market that could close me down. I didn't want to have any one technology that could go out of business. I didn't want to have any one traffic source that could totally kill me overnight. Sure. So I start, and what I realized was the most efficient way to achieve that wasn't to build a business from the ground up myself. Instead, it was to partner with other people and do what I became the best in the world at, which was executing what's now come to be known as the ask method. Mm-hmm. And I executed that one piece. Instead of spending all my time hiring, training, creating products, coding, building websites. I did my one tiny slice of the, of the process um, and did that over and over and over again. And some of those businesses, I still get royalty checks every single uh, month that uh, you know, pay me for the work that was done years ago. Mm-hmm. Some of those businesses went through an exit. I had two mm-hmm. businesses that had uh, $100 million plus exits where I was paid 
on the exit a nice healthy chunk of uh, money. I'm not allowed to say the amount of money, um, but a nice healthy chunk of money on those exits for the work that I did as part of the deal. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, every deal is a bit different. Um, and what I've learned along the way is um, you really got to create a model that works well for you. For me, when I was at my peak, 23 different markets, people always want to know what was the thing that changed? Why did you decide to start teaching this instead of just implementing this in model in market after market? Mm -hmm. It was seven years ago. My first son was born and I'm doing all these markets. And my son is six months old. My wife says, all right, honey, you've got to apply for life insurance because uh, you're dad now. And if something were to happen to you, like we need to make sure that we're okay. So I apply to life insurance for life insurance. And um, I go on a trip. I go to this trip to New York City. I come back. There's a letter on my desk when I come back. It's life insurance company. I open it up, open up the letter. And the letter says, denied. Hmm. Denied coverage. Now I'm thinking, okay, I'm in my I'm young. I'm in my 30s. Should be everything should everything should be fine. Now I was tired, but I just chalked it up to you know if you've got kids, you know what it's like. I'm running sure. like you know this company. I'm not sleeping at night because I got um, you know a six month old at home, and um, I'm not taking care of my body because I'm not making time to get to the gym. Um, and uh, I assume that that's just what it was. So I called the life insurance company, and, and I, I I assume that there was some mistake. So I called the life insurance company up, um, talked to someone. And um, the agent that I've spoken to said, um, you, I think you want to sit down because I have the results, the lab results of your exam in front of me. So I write these numbers down. Um, and then I made the biggest mistake of my life after I hung up the phone. I go to Google. Go to Google to check out what those results mean. And the results come back. Uh, kidney failure, renal system shutdown, pancreatic cancer. Mm. I'm freaking out, right? I'm freaking out. I'm thinking to myself, I push myself too hard. What the hell did I do to myself? My wife that night casually asked me, she says, hey, honey, good on the life insurance. I saw that the letter came in. We're all set. And I said, well, um, we need to talk. And she starts freaking out. She breaks down in tears. And she calls up the doctors and insists that we go see the doctor the next day. And I'm still in denial. I still think my lab results got mixed up with somebody else's. There's some mistake. So we go to the doctors the next day and um, explain to them the situation. They said, all right, let's get some lab work done. Stay in the waiting room, we'll do this stat. And I remember like it was yesterday, when the doctor came out in the waiting room, he just walks up to me, grabs me by the shoulders, and he looks me in the eye and he says, Mr. Levesque, you should be in a coma right now. We have to take you to the emergency room. And they rushed me to the ER, and I spend the next 10 days in intensive care. Hmm. And what, had happened was just, it was, it was pretty incredible. I found out that I was an undiagnosed type one juvenile diabetic and my body was shutting down. And if I had not applied for life insurance and made it to the doctors, there's a very good chance that I would have a either been in a coma or B just died. You didn't have any symptoms. Okay. Well, I had some symptoms. Um, in retrospect, it's very clear, but at the time, I, I just I was blind to them. Number one, I'd lost a lot of weight. If we're doing this video, on, this this interview on camera right now, you'd see that I'm about 185 pounds. I'm in good shape. Like anybody who sees me would know that I'm in good shape. Um, I was 130 pounds, and I looked like I was in The Walking Dead. And I just the story I was telling myself was that um, 
I'm not eating well, I'm not getting good sleep, I'm running my company, I'm a new dad, um, I don't want to, I want to be there for my wife. I don't want to be a, a baby about not getting up in the middle of the night. Like I want to, you know, I want to do it. So I'm just not taking care of myself, but that's fine. I'll get through it. Um, and, uh, uh, classic sign of, of, uh, when your my blood sugar was so high that, um, I was almost off the charts. I had a A1C levels of almost 13, which is basically yeah, comatose, um, which is a measurement of the blood, uh, your blood glucose level in your bloodstream over time. Um, and I was going to the bathroom three, four, five times a night, mm. which is the sign. Like if your blood sugar is really high. Now, the story I told myself, I'm a, I'm a New Hampshire kid. I grew up in the Northeast, cold winters. I ain't used to the Texas heat. <laughs> so I'm saying I'm not used to the Texas heat. I got to drink a lot of water. I'm drinking a lot of water, thirsty all the time, drinking a lot of water, which is why I'm having to get up two, three times in the middle of the night to, to, to go pee. Um, and so I just had this story that I told myself. Which, which made sense at the time. Yeah, I'm, I'm losing all this weight because I'm not eating well. I'm not getting to the gym. I'm not working out, um, putting everything ahead of me. I'm getting up three times a night to go to the bathroom because I'm drinking a lot of water, drinking a lot of water because I'm in the Texas heat. I'm not used to this. It's just the story that I told myself. And um, the craziest thing, so I'll tell you this. I wasn't planning on talking about any of this, but um, the craziest thing was this. The thing that was like the, the, the sign out of a, a, um, a, a, a novel by Gabriel Garcia Marquez was the night that I went to go brush my teeth. I went to go brush my teeth, and the way our bathroom was set up in our master bathroom is two sinks, separate counters. So one counter over here, one counter over here. I go to brush my teeth. And um, I'm about to wipe my face after brushing my teeth with a little hand cloth on the ring, and my hand cloth is covered in sugar ants. Hmm. Like the little towel that you you know dry your hands off mm -hmm. next to the sink. Sure. Covered. Like as if I had dropped an ice cream cone on the, so on, the, on the pavement and it would just be covered in sugar ants. It was like that. It was so bad that I just grabbed the, the tongs, like the, the, you know, the kitchen tongs, because uh, I didn't want to touch it, and I just threw the thing away. Now, I didn't think anything of it. I thought, oh, I must have had some, you know, I must have wiped my face and had some, you know, sugar on, you know, I must have had something sugary and there was like a little bit of sugar in the towel and whatever. Well, here's the thing. My body had so much sugar. I was... I was, you know, I had, there's blood in my urine. There was so much sugar coming out of my body that just my sweat was so sweet to attract sugar ants from outside into the house. That's crazy. And so this whole thing that happened just was one of these just wake up moments in my life. Yeah. Said, I can't do this. I, I have to make a change. And that's when I decided after I came out of ICU, out of intensive care, I got out and I said, if I get out of this thing, I'm going to do something with my life. And I decided that I was going to publish a book. I was going to teach the world how I did what I had done. And I said, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this now. And so I decided to basically exit most of those businesses, except for the ones that, you know, I still got a royalty on, still own outright, um, and focus my entire effort and energy on serving entrepreneurs, which is, um, you know, talking today. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that story. I mean, that's Certainly. the beyond part. That's the beyond eight figures part, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, man. Well, glad you got that under control. And, and it's interesting. One of my former clients, he used to have this saying, uh, which, which really plays in quite well with, with this discussion. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase here a little bit. But he used to say, when it relates to business or teaching or education products, et cetera, whatever it is that you're trying to put forth for the world to judge and consume, he says, first, you got to get it out. Then mm. you got to get it right. 
then you got to get it right all the time and then you can teach it to others mm. and so it's just it's so interesting to see how you made that shift from step three to, to step four there in terms of having it right i mean you were able to get it right all the time and then just making that shift to teaching it to others and so as you began then to teach it to others, did you have employees? Did you have an actual organization when you first released Ask, or was it just you and the, and the misses, and then you started to scale from there? Yeah, so you know, if I look back in, in time, I, could, I can, of course, have this. Um, I don't have it committed to memory, but my, sure. uh, uh, one of the questions I always get asked is, what's your biggest regret? I'm like not asking you, could do you things that. all over again. I don't care about I, that. I get it. <laughs> I get it, but it it's it ties to this this uh the question that you asked. Okay. And um if you could do things differently, what would you do different? And I'm embarrassed to say how long it was just me and my wife doing everything. Yeah. Like we were uh, uh I think we were in the seven figures when I was still stuffing envelopes and putting labels on books that were getting mailed out in the mail. Sure. Like literally it would be the two of us watching Netflix, sitting on our living room floor. All right, honey, what do you want to do? Let's put a movie on doing, you know, uh, $10 an hour work. Yeah. Um, and was I that, let me, so hold on. So was, was that just because you didn't feel like the margins were there? Like you didn't feel like, you know, they, they talk about the wealthy invest money to save time and those who struggle mm-hmm. financially, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll save a bit of money and then have to spend their time. Right. So was that kind of the thinking at that point? It's like, we just don't have enough margins and we can't afford to do this. Like what was, was it a scarcity? That's what it was. It was, it was a scarcity was, mindset. Exact, it was very much a scarcity mindset. I mean, I, I grew up, didn't have a whole lot, um, growing up. And, um, I think we, and neither did my wife. Um, she's Mexican American, grew up on the Mexican border, came to this country. She has a PhD, came to this, her grandparents came to this country, could not speak English, mm. could not read or write. And when, you know, two, two, two generations, she's an Ivy league graduate and, you know, has her PhD. So I think both of us came from that background mm-hmm. of not having a lot and needing to hang on to every penny. I'm not saying it's healthy. I'm not saying it's sure. right. I'm just saying that's where we came from. And so it took me a long time to unlearn that scarcity mindset and realize that, you know, if I could do it all over again, we would have hired so much sooner. Sure. And I tell this to, to, I think a lot of early stage entrepreneurs struggle with this. They don't feel like they're ready to hire. They say, okay, if I could just make a little bit more, if I could just save a little bit more, Mm -hmm. I'm going to do this. And I've learned that in most cases, whenever I hire and bring someone on, we grow. Mm Mm-hmm. Like we grow and it doesn't eat away at our margin. It allows us to expand into new opportunities. And so at the time, um, um, I had, you know, one employee, my assistant, um, I hired another employee after that. And I think at the time that we launched Ask, we had a relatively small team. Mm-hmm. Um, it was me, my wife, and probably, uh, don't quote me on the exact number, but between five and six or seven people mm-hmm. on our team. Mm-hmm. Today, we have 60, 60 something employees wow. across um, both companies. So, but we were, you know, so we've grown leaps and bounds since that came out. Um, but so hold on. At the so time, just, was, I, just, I just want to do the math here real yep. quick. So you're saying you're, are you at about 200 K per employee then? Is that, uh, is that kind of the rule of thumb for you? Do you have a rule of thumb as far as that metric goes? We don't have a rule of thumb and here's the reason why. So some of our team members are based offshore. Now, um, uh, we have an office in the country of Colombia, and in the country of Colombia, um, the, a monthly salary of two to three thousand dollars a month um, is an incredibly uh, good salary. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not. It's it's a you can't survive on that. In you can't survive on two thousand dollars a month in Austin. Sure. So I think it's a we don't look at our revenue per headcount. That's not really um, a number that makes sense. 
But we, what we do lack, do if you ask me the question, I'm not going to answer it. But what we do look at is our salary cap as a percentage of gross sales. Mm-hmm. So we do look at our ratio of what we invest in salary and what that percentage is relative to our top line revenue. And we have targets and benchmarks that we aim for in the same way that a, a sports team might have a salary cap or a salary benchmark that they're aiming for based on the revenue they're expecting to generate in that season. Mm-hmm. So that's you can't kind just of how gloss over that, though. What, what is that? What is that cap as a percentage? I'm not, I can't say that percentage. This is my, these are my trade secrets here, Come man. Come on, man. This um, is beyond eight figures. We get to the bottom of all that fun stuff. It's got to be yeah, what, no, 30%? I hear you. No, but what I, can, what, I can tell you, what I can tell you is this. Um, as, the, as our business has grown, um, our margins as a percent of our top-line revenue have shrunk somewhat, mm-hmm. right? So when it was just my wife and me, you know, put it this way, the extreme example. Um, when it was just me and my wife, and we're in these all these different markets, and I used you know a few outsourcers, and um, we kept things super simple. Our margin as a uh, percentage of our gross profit might have been as high as you know uh, 50, 60 percent sure. in some years, sure. right? So if we're making a million dollars in top line revenue, um, we're walking away with six hundred thousand dollars of that. That's mm-hmm. awesome. Um, I can tell you right now at $10 million, we're not walking away with 60% margin or anywhere close to that. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, it's, um, but we're building something that's not just about uh, income and lifestyle. We're building something that has intrinsic value in and of itself. Uh, the software side of our business is something that we could sell today mm-hmm. if we wanted to. Um, and it'll live well beyond, uh, you know, me. Yeah. Uh, versus when you're doing everything yourself, if you go away, there ain't no business, right? And, so and um, just give us a sense here. Yeah, yeah. No, I appreciate that. We're going to run out of time, unfortunately, and I want to give folks an opportunity to pick up a copy of Choose, and we'll talk about that here in a second. But just from uh, from sure. the standpoint of, of Bucket, how many users do you have now, and what are people paying monthly on that? So Bucket, we have a few different uh, uh, price plans. The most uh, common price plan is uh, $99 a month. So that's the most um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the common price plan, and our users right now we're somewhere between fifteen hundred and seventeen hundred uh, active monthly users, paying users. Mm-hmm. So that's about a two three million dollar run rate then on on just that product right now. That's where we're headed, and yeah. uh, hoping to take that uh, you know uh, grow it substantially more. Sure. And then as far as the two businesses go, is there a plan to exit or are you holding on to these things? I mean, is it a, is it a legacy play for you or is there an exit on the horizon? You know, it's hard to say. Um, of course we built the software business with a potential exit in mind. Um, you know, it's something that I hope will live beyond us. Um, but here's the thing, Steve, I love what I'm doing. Yeah. I love what we're building. I feel like we're just getting started. We've had offers, um, uh, substantial offers for both companies, and I've turned them down because I feel like there's still a lot of work that I want to do to get things to where I want to get them. And, um, you know, if you are making good money and you're enjoying, you're good at what you do and you're enjoying it, isn't that what life is all about? Yeah. Well, and it's interesting, too, because with your new book, Choose, you could take that money and you could choose something different that may, <laughs> you know, yeah, give you the benefit. Exactly. Of, you know, so, I mean, look, I think if the right number came along, anything's for sales. My grandfather always said, you, you know, we don't build monuments, right? But but I hear you, totally. and I hear you loud and clear. Um, so we're going to give folks an opportunity to grab the book uh, at beyond8figures.com forward slash choose. So beyond the number eight figures.com forward slash choose. What happens when they go to beyond8figures.com slash choose? 
So uh, we decided to do something super special for your audience, and that's this. I will ship a hardcover copy of the book Choose, uh, no matter where you are in the world, for free. All I ask is that you pay a small shipping and handling uh, uh, to cover postage. Mm -hmm. The book normally sells for $24.99 in the U.S., $33.99 in uh, in Canada, um, but it's just a few dollars for shipping and handling. And we'll also hook you up with over $200 in bonuses. So you get hooked up with the audiobook um, if you're the type of person who likes to listen to the audiobook, um, a digital course, uh, top 25 lucrative niches for 2019 that pass all seven of the market tests that I teach you how to run inside the book based on which markets I went into that were most successful, which ones failed, which ones my students had the most success with, which ones they failed at, separating what separates those who were successful versus ones who failed. So you get all that at uh, the link that you provided, beyond8figures.com forward slash choose. Yep, yep, yep. All right, my friend, we really do appreciate it. No, look, I know how busy you are. I know everything that you got going on, especially in book launch land. And I uh, wish, wish you, of course, the best of luck with that. I know you're going to do phenomenally well with that. And, uh, of course, you guys should definitely check out uh, Ask, the other book uh, that is, well, as you said, I mean, it's kind of a prequel in terms of Choose being a prequel to Ask. But definitely check out Ask as well because that book is phenomenal. Ryan Levac, really, man, really, really appreciate you being with us here on Beyond 8 Figures. Glad we finally had a chance to connect and figure out a way to play, and it's just the first of many more ways that uh, I know we'll play in the future. So thanks for this. Awesome. Thanks so much, Steve. Thanks so much, guys. Super appreciate the opportunity to share with your audience and look forward to connecting soon. Okay. okay. Sounds good, Ryan. Take care, buddy. And again, that is beyond8figures.com forward slash choose. And it's an interesting conversation, you know, I mean, just in terms of identifying where those opportunities are and getting into, of course, I love the whole evergreen versus fad concept and, you know, kind of begs the question of uh, is podcasting a fad, right? And it doesn't seem to be, but you never know. Richie, any uh, major takeaways uh, from Ryan? Mary, any major takeaways from Ryan you want to share here before we got to jump? I think it just came back to what I noticed early on, the teaching piece. You know, you see it in the infomercials on TV even. Yeah, these guys could make a million dollars selling or flipping houses, but they make $10 million, $100 million teaching people how to do it. Right. Yeah, there's a lot to be said for that. Mary, anything? Yeah, I got that as well. And also, you don't have to be the expert. You mm. can interview the experts and compile all of it into a a course. Sure. I mean, it's... It's what I'm doing with a, you know with closing from the stage. I mean, we've got nine modules that I'm putting out, but I'm also sitting down with people who are experts at, at closing from the stage who bring a different approach than I do, right? So that, that'll be an interesting course that we'll be releasing later this nice. year as well. But really great stuff. And uh, as always, we appreciate you guys tuning in to Beyond 8 Figures. And mm, got a lot of really interesting episodes coming up as well. So look forward to hearing from you guys on that. All right, for Mary Goulet and Richie Ote, White Wade holding it down there in the studio. Kelly Pelker's getting it in control back at headquarters. I'm Steve Olsher. We'll talk to you guys next time here on Beyond 8 Figures. Take care.